You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. How are you? I hope you're having a good week. It's episode 53 of Grow Yourself Up and we're into full-blown summer where I am. It's very sunny in London. And today um, we're going to be doing more on needs. So following on from episode 52 about needs where we talked about how complex it actually is um, to meet our needs, to notice what we need, to reconnect with our bodies. I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Mara Glatzel today. And let me tell you a little bit more about Mara. So Mara Glatzel, she, her, is a coach, podcast host, and the author of Needy, How to Advocate for Your Needs and Claim Your Sovereignty. She teaches fellow needy humans to uncover the most vulnerable and true expressions of themselves and learn how to deeply tend to their needs. Through her online programs, workshops, and retreats, Mara supports people to reclaim space for their own humanity and create ambitious lives filled with meaning without abandoning themselves in the process. Find out more at maraglatzel.com and you can also connect with Mara on Instagram at maraglatzel. Okay, let's get started. I think that you'll find this um, an enriching conversation. This is something that I'm really grappling with in my own life around um, balancing presence and um, being in connection with our own families and unwinding um, like workaholic patterns, essentially, which may have kept you safe in the past and um, what that might mean in terms of what you can achieve. Because really, at some point, we each have to decide how do we actually want to spend our time? Like, what do we want to do with our um, one true beautiful life in the world? I think those are Mary Oliver's words, one true beautiful life. Yeah. And I love those words. And um I think it's so important to be in communication with ourselves about what it is that how do we want to spend our days because it can be so easy to get wrapped up into um, old patterns and striving for things and then thinking like, what on earth am I doing? So anyway, have a listen to this episode and let me know what you think. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So Mara, I know you're the mom of two children. Um, tell us a bit about your journey to motherhood and um Tell us about your needs and how they have kind of dovetailed with your journey to motherhood. Yeah, so I always wanted to be a mother. I always felt very certain that I wanted to have kids. 
And um, when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter, I struggled much more than I thought that I would during the pregnancy. And I struggled after she was born with a lot of postpartum mood issues. And, you know, it was challenging. I was trying to nurse her and she it was just, it was never easy. Things were just hard during that time. And being a recovering perfectionist and control freak, I found it really hard. Frankly, I still find it hard with her. Um, because you're always caught in the act of doing something new. You know, now she's seven and it's the first time I've ever parented a seven-year-old. It's like everything with her is new and being new at something inevitably means that you're learning on the fly, which can be uncomfortable and, and, and in front of other people. And what I found was when she was born, I was really struck by how we go from having all of our needs met kind of on tap in utero to being out in the world as these autonomous little beings with very rudimentary skills to share with our caregivers what we need. And as the caregiver, just how exhausted and overwhelmed I felt and how much misunderstanding begin just at the very beginning of our lives where we need something our caregiver doesn't know what that is they're tired they're frustrated you're tired you're you know just how deep it goes when we think about advocating for our needs and becoming her mother it was the first time in my life where I wasn't able to meet all of my needs by myself kind of on the you know in the perimeter of my life uh, I just didn't have the time, space, bandwidth, energy, physicality. Her birth was really hard and I, it took me a long time to recover physically. So I was overwhelmed by all of a sudden truly not being able to meet my needs, not even having time or space to figure out what I needed to ask for to begin with. And it was through, I was already doing self care coaching. But it was through Delphina's birth that this work, the work of Needy, was really born. And about three months after she was born, I started teaching what I would go on to teach for six years is a nine-month course called Tend, where I I supported um, people in figuring out what they needed and how to ask for it, how to honor it. And that course was kind of the infrastructure that I built Needy on top of. And so that time, that that delicate three-month postpartum time was so transformative for me that that I had this young baby and I just knew I have to start having these conversations. I have to start teaching this work. And it has only grown from there. You know, I have had a second child. The pandemic started shortly thereafter. And increasingly it becomes clear to me that we don't have the vocabulary or the skills or the mutual understanding necessary to really have conversations about how to get our needs met and that we need as much help as we can get. So I've, you know, sometimes think, oh, you know, I never intended to niche down with my work in any real way. In many ways, it's not because this this is such a broad category. Um but working with needs, there's always so much to work with here. And we carry such 
lengthy and powerful stories that are so tender. And yeah, and I know, of course, I'm doing this work with myself. So I understand that on a personal level too. Yeah. And I think what she just said about we carry such lengthy and tender personal stories and they're not lengthy and tender personal stories about allowing ourselves to get our needs met. They're tender and lengthy stories about why we are not allowed to get our needs met or why we just kind of obliterate ourselves from the whole conversation. That's kind of the core of what we're talking about here, like generally on, on Grow Yourself Up. And also how, um, how do we not pass that on? Mm-hmm. Like how do we help our children not, um, maybe obliterate is too strong a word, but then sometimes I think, no, that's exactly what it is. Um, that kind of like giving ourselves permission because um, when you were talking about your course 10, that thing about what am I allowed? It's like such a big, what am I going to give myself permission for? Or do, do I wait for someone to give me a permission slip? I mean, how um, I've read um, some of Needy and um, I was really struck by um, your conversation or your kind of feelings about a conversation with your own partner about how to get your needs met. How did you kind of start that um a three-month-old baby because that's such a complex thing. Like, how did you kind of carve out the space to figure it out? Uh, I want to say it was by necessity because at that time I really felt like a pot boiling over. And it was a combination of just how imperfect I was. Like, there was not even, I mean, I just hadn't realized how much of my energy went into safeguarding how people perceived me. Well, can you say more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, how how I was forcing myself to be who and what I I thought was expected of me. And I had done that for such a long time and my needs were an inexplicable part of that, of course, because I only wanted to need what was okay to need in the context of that relationship. Do you link that to your role in your family in your family of origin? Or you think it came later? Yeah. You know, I was the I'm the oldest sister. I was really bright. I was a high achiever. Um I'm naturally kind of a voracious learner and somebody who's highly attuned to the world around me. So, you know, I, like all of us, wanted to belong, wanted to feel safe, and had a highly tuned understanding of kind of receiving and interpreting feedback and making myself into what would enable me to be the safest, would enable me to belong. It was a certain point, it was maybe five years, four or five years before I had um, my kids that I started to realize how much of a shell my life was because it looked good. It was kind of right. And I was doing whatever I thought I needed to do to be approved of, to receive that approval from external sources. But it wasn't what I wanted. I didn't even know what I wanted. You know, I didn't know who I was really at all. I knew who I should be and who other people expected me to be. It's a really humbling experience to realize, wow, I don't know myself. Um, 
if I'm really honest with myself, that might be because I don't like myself very much. But also, what is that? You know, if I don't really know myself, what am I not liking? You know, it's this kind of collection of stories maybe you carry from the playground when you're a kid or, you know, and you haul them around into adulthood. But I I did have this understanding of I'm a lot. I'm a lot of a person. I talk too loud, too much, too fast. I'm I care about everything with equal measure. I have a lot of feelings. I'm I'm just a a force of a human. And so when I was a kid, I got feedback about that 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 was unwelcome. And I set about the task of kind of tailoring myself down in specific ways. And these last maybe 10 years have been about welcoming myself back into my life. And my kids are great teachers for this. My oldest is devastatingly similar to me. And I find myself remembering who I was before the world told me who to be. A lot of that has to do with my needs, right? What do I want? You know, the other day I was telling my partner, like, I think I want to get back on stage. My partner was like, what are you talking about like <laughs> like in a public speaking way because you do you know I'm a public speaker uh, and I was like no like community theater or burlesque performance or you know all of these things I used to do when I was a kid and loved and and really needed um so yeah it's 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 amazing how we distance ourselves from that fullest expression of who we are because we think we have to and when we're kids sometimes it feels safer to and that this process for me of adulthood has been to really reclaim some of that find some of that reconnect with myself um but it's humbling it's really humbling it is really humbling and i think that um what you said about I'm I'm conscious that I want to take you back to the thing about when you were talking about being a pot boiling over, but when you were talking here about not liking yourself, or or the idea of you think I don't think I like myself, but actually I don't really know what I'm what I'm kind of critiquing, and I think that so many of us have internalized that we have a strong inner critic because of our family of origin experiences, and then we've internalized that we just need to keep going and keep working and keep producing, and that when we're not producing or being like super busy we're just bad basically and so not meeting our needs fits into that how have you kind of extricated that from um and and kind of said well i can like myself and i still don't have to be busy so part of that for me has been developing hobbies and interests so i can be delighted and feel not productive necessarily but like I'm doing, like I'm engaged in something. And because before, you know, I I was, I started my business because I thought, oh, I'll, it'll be better to work for myself than for other people. Then I found myself to be a total workaholic in my own business. And I, because I love the work that I do, it's blurry. And you think, oh, this is my passion. Um, and it's so seductive and easy to do it all the time. But it was not good for me. It's not good for any of us to work all the time. And so developing hobbies, because the question was always, well, if I shut down my laptop or I stop working, what am I doing with myself? 
And the answer was nothing. And that felt scary and impossible. So when I started finding things that I liked, and, you know, I like to go on walks outside. I like to listen to podcasts. I like to make art. I like to cook. I like to, um, I don't know. I like to do stuff with my kids. That's really, you know, that, that helps. It's like I go on field trips and I volunteer for things and I'm going to run a Girl Scout troop and. I participate in my local politics. I'm on a bunch of boards and committees, which is kind of like work, but also I really love it. So I just started to see, well, what do I want to be doing with my time if I'm not working? And the more that I was able to develop, these are the things that I enjoy, the more easily I was able to balance my life because I had a full throttle picture of, yeah, I'm going to stop working at this time because I'm going to listen to my favorite podcast while I make my dinner, and then I'm going to, you know, play hide and seek with my kids, and then I'm going to watch my favorite TV show. It's like having an understanding of what am I doing when I'm not working? What does that life look like? And I want to be totally honest when I say that I built that from scratch. There was some remembering of things like, oh, when I was a kid, I used to like to knit and do kind of craft things and do watercolor. So some of it's that, but also some of it's just trial and error, trying things on and saying, oh, well, that was fun. That nourished me. Um, that was enjoyable. I would do that again. Or <laughs> many times I don't need to do that again, but at least I tried. Yeah, there's a lot of investigation. Thank you for kind of um, because it's not, this is not about right first time or getting it perfect like first time with our like favorite hobby. We really have to explore. Well, yeah. And that's humbling too, because you think, you know, I took this pottery class and I thought by the end of this pottery class, I am going to make these like beautiful, you know, mugs and all these things. By the end of 10 weeks, I was still, you know, figuring out how to like hold the clay and center it on that. You know, I mean, it was so challenging. And, you know, part of that is hard is, you know, that inner perfectionist that wants it to, you know, if I'm going to dedicate time to it, it needs to look good or it needs to show up on Instagram or it needs to, I don't know, be worth my time. Yeah. But you're worth your time. Yeah. And uh, that doesn't mean you have to do anything perfectly because, again, that's just slipping back into that extraction model where it doesn't matter that I'm having fun or that I'm with my friends or I'm enjoying myself. It only matters if I come out of it with this final product that I anticipate being able to do. Yeah. And and the, th the thing about you said about um, at the end of 10 weeks, I would be I was laughing because that would be exactly how I feel, because the appreciation of process and acknowledgement of I might be like the worst in the class because I would only want to do something if I was going to be the best in the class and I would be the first to get there and do the best, like, you know, completely unrealistic expectations. Um, and it's so humbling. I think mothering is so humbling for that as well, that um, that process is basically all we have because we are always in process. Yeah. Well, and I think about what I want to teach my kids. You know, the other day, my partner and I were kind of in this fight because my partner thought that my kids should be taking ice skating lessons. And we tried and they hated it. And my partner was, is raised in the perspective of, you know, you persevere and you do it. And I'm kind of like, well, you know, 
if you don't, I'm not going to force them to do something fun. That's ridiculous to me. So, you know, my partner said, well, they're going to get older and all of their friends are going to know how to ice skate and they're not going to know how to ice skate. And it's our job to teach them these skills. And while, yes, I do think it's, you know, my job to teach my kids skills, the number one skill I want to teach them is it's okay to be a beginner at any point. So you don't have to feel the pressure to harness every skill in case you need it someday. That instead, if you have a latent ice skating interest, that, you know, we're, we're teaching them this skill of, well, it's fine to realize, you know, as a 38-year-old mother of two that you want to get into burlesque or community theater. Like, you're allowed to do something new, be new at things, be a beginner at things, try something. You know, the other thing that I notice in my children is that already they're so young, this propensity towards you're only allowed to do the things you're good at. And this happens with sports, you know, they're not very, one of them's not very athletically inclined. And so people will say like, oh, well, then she doesn't have to do it, or just discount her. I'm like, well, if she's enjoying herself, I want her to know that it's okay to do things that you're not good at just because you like them. And that, again, it's not about harnessing every skill in case that scarcity mindset, harnessing everything in case you need it someday, or being perfect at everything, or only being able to pursue the things that you're naturally inclined towards that we're allowed to do things for a multitude of reasons and primary should be, I like it. It's, it, I, you know, it, it feeds me, it nourishes me. I get something from it. I like to run. I'm really slow. Probably the world's slowest runner. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like I, it's, it is fine to do things that you enjoy that you're not great at. And those are the skills I think that we really need to teach ourselves, our inner child, and also our children. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I, I even think that thing about great, because the feeling, it's only when other people overlay a comparison or a, a judgment that it's we're not doing it well, that that there's sometimes a sense of, oh, I, sh- I shouldn't do this. And I think that's one of the reasons that many of us have struggled to play with our children because it feels like, um, will I do that well? What does what does play look like instead of just going with what our children do and participating, you know? And I think that, yeah, I love what you say about the ice skating thing, because I've also thought I need to teach my children certain skills, not necessarily ice skating, but um, but it's okay to take to ice skating when you're 18 and think, oh, I'm going to be an ice skater now, you know? Yeah, I love that. I want to go back to what you said about um that you started to meet your, to almost pay more attention to your needs when you felt like you were pot boiling over. Because I think that there are many times in, um, in mothering and in life actually that we become pots boiling over and that kind of calls us back to ourselves. How do you manage that now? Like, what are your signals? Oh, I'm starting to boil over a bit. Let me, mm-hmm. let me refocus on myself. Yeah. So I'll say that. You know, that pot boiling over feeling is that, you know, I'm pressed against the wall of my life and there's so much being asked of me. And so, of course, I, you know, feel this all the time in parenthood. Yeah. But, you know, any kind of stressful situation can make you feel this way. This is something I heard from so many of my clients through the pandemic that, you know, the pandemic stress forced them to feel this way, this pot boiling over 
too much to do, not enough time, not enough resources spread between us. And for myself, I notice that is coming that kind of overwhelm, that like deep, you know, burnout, overwhelm feeling is coming when I'm more highly sensitive to noises. When I feel, um, I've recently been feeling this is this particular flavor, which is it takes me a really long time to do something simple, like create a poster for something for one of my kids' classes will take me several hours, which normally that would take me not long at all, or that I'm perseverating, I'm filled with a lot of self-doubt while I'm doing it. All of these are hallmark signs for me of I'm not doing great, and I'm kind of heading in the direction of doing worse. And so what I think about um, when I see those symptoms is that, first of all, they are symptoms of overwhelm symptoms of burnout. They're not moral failings. Doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with me. Um, doesn't mean, you know, <laughs> I need to be fixed in some kind of way. It's like, that's a symptom. That That is what happens to me when I am overloaded. And so when I see that, there's two things that need to happen immediately. And the first is, is there anything that I can take off my plate? And really getting honest with yourself because, you know, sometimes like, is there anything I can take off my plate? And that part of you, that ego part of you jumps up to say, no, you know, I'm the only one who can do this. I'm the only one who could do that. I've already said yes. What are they going to think about me? But really being honest with yourself because being burnt out serves nobody and inevitably everything's going to come crumbling down. So, you know, being really honest with myself, what can I take off my plate? And sometimes those are hard sacrifices to make. Um, but, but in the long run, they stabilize me. And I think that's what we're looking for. So the second piece is what can I bring in to stabilize my energy? And those are physical needs, like more rest, making sure another symptom that I notice is I'm kind of eating. Over the course of the day, like I'm not eating meals, I'm just kind of eating in this haphazard way. So something I bring in to stabilize myself is no longer snacking and and having distinct meals like breakfast, lunch, dinner, and usually a snack in there between lunch and dinner. And making sure that I'm not like in a restrictive way eating whatever I want, but eating in those meal times so that I'm sure that I'm eating at intervals throughout the day. Um, so I think that we can really do ourselves a lot of service when we notice that we're feeling that those those symptoms, noticing those symptoms of overwhelm to clear things out as much as possible. That is sometimes possible, sometimes not possible. But the second piece of really stabilizing our energy, because during times of stress, of course, we put these physical needs last and we say, you know, we're like eating the crumbs that our kids throw off of their tray or, you know, crusts of sandwiches or um, I had a friend who didn't eat unless her, you know, until after her children went to sleep, like did not eat all day unless her kids were napping or or asleep. Um, putting your knees last in that way, not asking for any kind of support. 
when times are hard, but when times are hard, that's when you need that care the most. So that doesn't mean you're going to get everything that you need, but focusing on one thing. Can I drink enough water today? Can I make sure to eat periodically throughout the day? Can I try to get to bed at a certain time tonight? Can it really help just to to stabilize it? Because when you're in that pot boiling over a place, there's a lot to process. And processing takes energy too. So, you know, you you need that stabilization to even have conversations with yourself about what's going on here. What do I need? What conversations do I have to have with my partner or my friend or my parents? That all takes energy too. So being really uh, careful about how you're tending to your physical needs can be supportive and nourishing in that process. Yeah, and I think that what you said about, um, because for for so many of us, what we you know we talked a little bit before, I think about overworking, or maybe we talked about this earlier in the podcast, but for so many of us that overworking and disconnecting from our bodies is a way we've survived. And often it feels actually easier to continue in that cycle of just overworking and being high on caffeine and chocolate or not even high, just kind of building ourselves up with that. And the the idea of stopping and stabilizing and sort of building in like a scaffolding is actually quite panic inducing because um you then you kind of much you kind of much more connected to your body. But um I've also kind of experienced that as the as the only way to do it. And I notice when I get pain in the middle of my back, I could kind of an ache even when I get out of bed. I'm like, oh, this is really time now to kind of wind down. Because, but as you say, like in, in motherhood, often it's, there's so much of that feeling of your back being as you, like against the wall of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many things that add to that, like from a structural point of view, in terms of how your children are, how do they sleep? Um, do they have any additional needs? Um, are there any things that you have to advocate for them for? And so I, I really, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you touched on the complexity of how I'm, because then in that place, the idea of meeting our, like our spiritual and emotional needs is like so far down the list that it's not even like an idea because we can't even meet our physical needs. I like in your book the way you have your framework. So we can always go back to at least that first thing um, of self-acceptance of like, oh yeah, here's me doing my pattern again. There is this my fourth burnout or my fifth, you know, like how many times am I going to have to do this again to kind of um, stop the pattern? Because sometimes that's all we can do is just accept where we are. Yeah. Well, and the cool thing is that uh, our inner children and our children need a lot of the same things. So, you know, sometimes it can be really hard to allow yourself to receive from yourself the same way you might care for a child. But, you know, I noticed that when you can surrender. So, you know, last year, um, my partner's uh, best friend received a terminal cancer diagnosis. And so sorry. Thank you. Uh, my partner moved out of our house to take care of him. We thought it was going to be just a couple of weeks, but it ended up being closer to 10 months that I was kind of by myself in the house with the kids and running my business, writing this book, <laughs> taking care of my kids, all of these, my kids, nobody was sleeping. It was the whole, you know, you can all imagine it, it was exactly how it is. And 
I quickly had to become honest with myself about what I was capable of and what I what really helped me was surrendering to the I mean Mike we all we all ate together the same things we all like I went to sleep with them at night at the same time you know my my youngest we fall asleep with her so I just went to sleep with her and you know, I used to work after my kids went to sleep and, you know, eat something fancier, different than what they ate, like all of these different things, just simplifying everything so that it was just we were doing the same things together. And I had so many stories about why I had to do this and why I had to do that and why I couldn't go to sleep at seven o'clock and why, you know, so, so many stories. But what actually helped to kind of create that through line during a very stressful and tenuous time for our family was for me to get really clear about the fact that I had to take as much off my plate as possible. Things were going to look the way that they were, which means less perfect than I'm comfortable with and more, um, and more childlike, like really feeding that part of myself that needed some some consistency and some stability and uh to like eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and go to bed at 7 p.m and so i think part of this too is that even though parenting is a lot and we can have a lot on our plates sometimes when we allow ourselves to bring things way down to this simplified point we can find some union in um doing things with our kids in the way that our kids need them and that we actually also need them and that that can be really beautiful and i had so much resistance to that um but also ultimately it was what i needed well it sounds um there's so many things come up for me from that it sounds magical going to bed at 7 p.m yes um <laughs> for a start it is um and um, I, at points, have done this thing where I bath with my girls one by one because they love, they love that and it's very tender. And then I would go to bed at the same time as them. But I am very resistant to early bed um, and have all these stories about how I need to achieve more. And also because of adrenal fatigue and cortisol issues, um, I'm still trying to sort of cycle away from having like a real cortisol peak at night, actually. And so it's, it sometimes can feel really difficult to actually uh, enforce that. But I think that's one, that's such a wise thing that you said right there about doing the same things that our kids do. Because when we do put ourselves to bed earlier and um, eat with them really early as well, it's so freeing, actually. I sort of, I mean, my productivity has just like plummeted like this basically because um, doing that means you can't do work at night. Yeah. Well, it required me to get honest with myself about what was the quality of the work that I was doing at night. Um, because it wasn't great. <laughs> when I was really honest with myself, it wasn't great. Um, and also being the only grown up in the house and my kids were waking up all night long. So, you know, <clears throat> quite realistically, I was exhausted. Yeah. And I, after, 
spending a period of time where I tried, um, you know, all the hacks to get them to sleep through the night, get them to sleep better, get them to all of these things. I mean, it was this huge change for our family. And so their sleep was disrupted just because of that. And when I finally surrendered to the fact that the only way to actually do this is to just go to bed earlier so that I'm sleeping more. And then they get up at three, four o'clock in the morning and there's nighttime shenanigans. Well, you know, I've gone to bed at seven instead of 11 p.m. So, you know, I've already getting so much more sleep in. And, um, but yeah, it's hard. It is hard to let go of, um, it is hard. It's hard to let go of what you want to do. Um, especially if you're an ambitious person, I'm an ambitious person and I find reckoning with, my energy, with my physical health, with the needs of my kids, um, and getting real with myself about how much I have to offer um, outside of that. It's, it is, it's humbling. It can be really hard uh, to counteract those capitalist stories that my worth is attached to my work. And who am I if I'm not working? And what is my value if I'm not producing in this specific kind of way, um, it's painful. It's really painful. I'm, I, I actually, I wrote something down. I wrote here, um, following our dreams and meeting our needs and living in the land with our values is a dance. And it's really complex because if we, like the following our dreams, if we are ambitious, if we want to get things done, you know, like because we want to share a message or because it feels like maybe also clouded by the fact that work may be linked to passion admittedly, and maybe that's part of the extraction story. But um, in some sense, it means like maybe right-sizing ambition is the conclusion I've come to, because otherwise we do just set up um, ourselves for cycles of burnout because we can't do it all. Yeah, it's true. I love that, the term right-sizing. Um, it's true. I... You know, I, I kind of anticipated as I started to do this work of stepping away, divesting from toxic productivity culture and and those capitalist messages, I thought that I was going to find that my ambition was my social conditioning. But what I found was, what I continue to find is that my ambition is innate in me. And the ways that I have been taught to approach it are my social conditioning, of course. But even as I start to strip those things away, I still have this voracious appetite for conversations and things and, you know, just thoughts and yeah, thinking and talking and creating. And I just, you know, my partners, I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, I saw you five minutes ago. I'm like, well, in those five minutes, I've thought about this and this and this and this and this, and I've read this article and I want to talk about that thing. And I just am that kind of person. But when I push myself too hard, I inevitably kind of bankrupt that ambition because it's, I'm spread so thin over so many different projects, so many different parts of my life. And I find that being really clear with myself about how much I can actually do, I may want to do, I often want to do so many things, but really being clear about how much I actually can do 
Um, and having that be varied. So it's not just only wholly devoted to my work. It's also, you know, maybe there's a social part of my life that I want to feed or, you know, spending time with my kids. This is kind of right now in my life. It's like birthday season where both my kids have a birthday. My niece has a birthday. My partner has a birthday. So we're spending a lot of time celebrating. And I know that during the month of June, that takes up a lot of my energy. And so I may want to do a bunch of other things, but I'm not, I'm not realistically going to be able to. But what is amazing <laughs> to be reminded of over and over again is how heartbreaking it is to have to say no to yourself. You know, there are all these things on your plate, things you want to say yes to, opportunities that come your way. And I want to say yes to everything. And it's a real practice to say no. Um, and to, to safeguard open space in my life for living. Yeah. It is such a real practice, I think, because, um, the overworking, I think, has, is such a safety thing. It's such a, I will be okay if I shine and if you continue to give me lots and lots of feedback that, and whoever this, the continuing to give you the feedback is. Um, and so stepping away from that, I notice a huge kind of uh, amount of fear comes up each time I do that. Um, and there's like a kind of a, like a crevice or I don't know, a crevice or something that opens up as if I might go into the crevice if I don't do that. Getting to the other side of that and noticing, oh, that was okay. And actually I had a much more joyful day because I did something with my kids or, um, whatever it might be. But, um, getting to that point in our own lives where we're happy to choose for ourselves. It's like such a big journey. And I think we go back and forth like between choosing and not choosing, choosing and not choosing. Um, I mean, how did you write a book embodying your principles? It really, it felt like it wanted to be born. And, you know, the pandemic started and frankly, the first thought that I had in my mind was if I die of COVID without having written this book, I'm going to be so mad. And <laughs> it was just clear to me that this is a thing that was unfinished for me. Um, but, you know, kind of coming full circle to where we started this conversation, creating this body of work and sending it out into the world has been an ultimate test of my own inner work. Because you are setting yourself up for a situation where you cannot micromanage other people's perceptions of you. You can't be cute and charming and wonderful and, you know, you put it in the book and you're not there to defend yourself when they're reading it. Um, you have to trust in yourself. You have to trust in the work. You have to trust in the readers. And um, it has been a really powerful process of allowing myself to be honest, allowing myself to be the fullest expression of myself that I had access to, and really separating myself out from the need for immediate external feedback on that, to really stand in my own space and say, this is it. And, you know, I believe in this work, whether or not you like it, which is so uncomfortable for me. Um, and so it's been, it, 
it has been challenging. It also is beautiful. I mean, as with a lot of things, right? I've learned a lot of hard lessons that I'm grateful for, but also weren't pretty during the process. Um, and yeah, I think it, it more than anything is the culmination of so much work around rebuilding my self trust so that I know that, you know, even if the book bombed, which gratefully it did not. Um, even if everyone hated it, which gratefully they did not, um, that, you know, I would have my own back no matter what. And that is the very essence of kind of always choosing for ourselves of kind of, and, and not in an asshole way, you know, not like being like, I'm going to ditch your kids and I'm going to choose myself, but to really like back ourselves and back ourselves and back ourselves and turn. I always have this, re- this, um, imagery of, did you ever watch Top Gun? the movie. Do you remember the radar things which were shaped like that? Like, I don't know, facing away from us. And so many of us have our radar just going outwards, just to pick up, how do you need me to be so that I can be okay? And that turning it back to ourselves is just like such an endless process. But I just love what you said about that you're going to back your body of work, no matter what your kind of your reading community said. And I think that's the very kind of core of, um, of like uh, self-acceptance, um, self-trust and self-love is to just be there for ourselves. And what a lovely, you know, how, how lovely that you've kind of got that place with it. I think that's huge. Thank you. Yeah, it feels huge. Really huge. It's one of those things that I don't think that I, you know, I, I tried to write this book a lot of times and um, didn't, didn't, do it all the times. And I really think that part of the reason that it never came to fruition before was because I did had did not yet have the capacity to be with myself during the process. Um, because there's a lot of visibility. It's a lot of uh, putting yourself out there, trusting yourself. And it took some time to cultivate that to the point where it it was possible for me. Because it was scary, but, you know, um, being able to feel afraid and do something anyway uh, requires a lot of presence and a lot of tools. And um, it took time to to develop that to the point where writing this book was possible. Yeah, because we need a lot of nervous system capacity to know that we're safe, regardless of the signals that we get about our work from others. It's it's the very opposite of kind of um, people pleasing and perfectionism, actually, which is all about that ex- external kind of validation. Um, yeah, it does take a lot of capacity. Um, and um, Mara, I'm conscious of our time now. Um, I'm wondering about um, what else you think might be kind of joyful and useful for for people listening about um, some of the things that have just really been so core to your growing yourself up journey in in both mothering and life and um, your creative processes? Yeah. So, you know, I want to leave you with this idea that you're, you know, I think we think of our needs as these heavy things, that we have these big, deep conversations about our needs. And that actually your needs are these powerful tools for you in coming home to yourself. And, you know, I like to think about it in this way because people often 
want to know, you know, is it a need or is it a want or, you know, put it into a hierarchy because we only have so much time and space. And so playing with it in this way where a need is something that you require and a want is something that you desire. So, you know, the need is kind of the what and the want is the how. So say you're hungry, you need to eat. And then the that want is, well, what do you desire to eat? What tastes good to you right now? Or you have a need to contribute to the world around you. How do you want to do that in a way that really works for you? And so it's it can be playful. And that that is such an essential part of the process way before you start having conversations with other people about your needs, way before you do any heavy lifting or heavy advocating. This work can be about how do I want my coffee and in what mug and what do I want to wear and what do I want to eat and what feels good to my body right now. And that there's so many ways to play with honoring, knowing what you need, asking for what you need, honoring what you need that um, are really fun and really enjoyable. And that is a part of the work too. You know, I think, you know, we all think we have to be kind of mired down in the work to be getting anywhere, right? We're so consumed with by getting somewhere. And so we um, can approach ourselves in such a way that um, we're experimenting with things. We're just trying stuff out. And um, that can be really fun too. It can be a fun exploration. So it doesn't have to be heavy, can be enjoyable. Start where you are with whatever feels kind of top of mind. And that's enough. It's enough. And to sort of say those words over and over that it's enough. And that um because the exper- the only way we get to do it is the experimentation. But I think for so many perfectionists, even the experimentation feels hard because now now we've decided to turn our minds to this great project of the needs, and now we've got to nail the needs, you know? So I love the way you've brought in um, play and exploration and experimentation. Sort of just lightens everything. Yeah. Yeah. Date yourself. It can be fun. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to join us today, Mara. This has been a lovely conversation. And thank you for like all the wisdom and warmth that you shared. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is great. I could be talking all day. I know, me too. <laughs> You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself. For more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.